uh, crucifixion was to be a long-term process of death. It is said that when a man dies of crucifixion, he dies a thousand deaths. For this reason, uh, he is impaled upon a stake. He is either tied or nailed to it. The nails did not go through the hand. It went through the uh, wrist right where the bone could keep the spike set and secure, but also he was tied. Uh, There was a small post at the bottom of the crucifixion of the cross or spike that he was impaled upon to, to, to put his feet like this. And as the weight of his body hung down, it's very difficult to breathe. In order to breathe, uh, the victim must push himself up, get a few gasps of breath, and then it's too hard to keep that position to slump back down. Uh, most died in, it took many times days and days of that slow process until the man was so weak that he couldn't push himself up and literally not able to catch his breath that he died in that particular way. Uh, it, outside of the country of Palestine, because the Jews would not allow a dead body to remain on the cross, especially during a holy week or holy Sabbath. But outside of that country, the corpse were allowed to stay on the cross, allowing the crows and birds to finish the job. William Barclay writes this, There is no more terrible death than death by crucifixion. Even the Romans themselves, and by the way, the Persians handed it down to the Carthaginians, they taught the Romans to crucify. No Roman citizen would ever be crucified unless it was a case of treason. Crucifixion was held for slaves and the very worst of all criminals. Barclay writes, even the Romans themselves regarded it with a shudder of horror. Cicero declared that it was the most cruel and horrifying death. Tacitus said that it was a despicable death. And then he goes on describing it being a Persian method handed down to the Romans. This is the death that our Lord and Savior died for us. John doesn't spend a lot of time on the narrative talking about the details of what he suffered, but I think it's important for us to know what he suffered. He had been on trial since 6 in the morning. It was now noon. He had been beaten with a lashing and a scourging that killed Many men didn't make it through. Most men passed out. Jesus did not. He faced the most cruel torture and mocking. Crown of thorns was placed and most likely beat down around his head, causing the spears to puncture his skull. Then... On his shoulders was laid a a wooden cross. 
Now, John isn't going to tell this part, but I need you to know that Simon of Cyrene was beckoned to carry his cross. Usually in the movies, it's because it shows a Jesus that is exhausted and can't go on anymore. But the gospel narratives never say that. Never. I think, I think because he loved us so much, he had the strength to carry that cross all the way to Calvary. You get weak. I'm going to make a suggestion to you about how that happened. I think it was the Roman centurion in charge of the whole process. At the end, when Jesus died, that centurion is going to say, Behold, this was the Son of God. I believe the sympathy of a Roman centurion seeing the magnificence the magnificence of Jesus Christ as he carried that cross like he had never seen a man carry that cross, so pierced his heart that he beckoned Simon of Cyrene to carry it for him. Jesus went out from the palace, from the marble stone slat the pavement of judgment. And he went the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. Normally, the Romans took the longest route to where the man would be crucified. They had two reasons. The charge against the man was always placed on a placard, which Jesus had his placard. We'll see what it says in just a minute. That placard was always carried in front of the crucified, or the victim. And by the way, when the judge issued the verdict in Latin, he said, Ibis ad crucem. Ibis ad crucem. To the cross you will go. Pilate utters that. The placard is made. It is set before the procession. And it is taken the longest route for two reasons. Number one. It is to communicate to everyone who sees it. This is the charge against the man. This is what happens when you defy Roman authority. It was to strike fear in the hearts of everyone who saw the charge and the victim and the cross. Don't challenge Rome. But there was a second reason. Number two, the reason that... The placard was set out in front and carried through the streets as this. If there was anyone who could bring forth evidence to refute the charge, the man was sent back to trial. If there was anyone who stepped forward in that crowd and said, wait, I have evidence to the contrary, that man was brought back before the judge and given a brand new trial. As Jesus Christ walked the Via Della Rosa, going through crowds, the crowds of the Passover, well over a million Jews, not one person, not one, not one, stepped forward to say a word in his defense. And we were in that crowd. I wonder, I wonder if the blind man who could now see because of Jesus Christ turned his eyes away. I wonder if the one who had his ears open 
turned his ears away. Just speculation. Days before they were laying palm tree, palm branches to welcome their king, and now no one spoke for him. And yet he continued on the path for us. John 19, we're going to go here, and then we're going to slide back to Isaiah 53. You need to see this in, in a passage in the Old Testament that foretold this. Notice verse 16. So he delivered him, Pilate delivered Jesus over to them, chief priests, to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull. Now some have speculated that this was a place littered with the skulls of men, but that's impossible in, 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 in the country of the Jews. They would never allow that. They buried their bodies. This was most likely a place that had the shape, a hill that shaped like a skull. In the Hebrew, the Aramaic or Hebrew, it's called Gorgotha. There, they crucified him. And with him, two others. One on, look how careful scripture is to give you the order and the display before you. And with him, two others. One on either side. And Jesus between them or in the midst. You have the Son of God. By the way, nowhere does it say that his cross was higher than theirs. We, we get so much of our imagery from the movies, do we not? And from pictures. He was at, I take it, the same level as theirs. They wouldn't have put his cross higher. In between him were two criminals. He died with the transgressors. He died with sinners. He died in the company of men who were rebellious, wild men. John doesn't tell us the incident, but one got saved and the other didn't. This is a picture of all humanity. One cried out and said, If you be the Son of God, remember me when you come into, into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at him and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. The other said, If you are who you say you are, get down off the cross, take me with you off this cross. One saved. One lost. One born again, one not born again. I ask you this morning, which camp are you in? Do you know Christ as you have you cried out to him to remember you? You believe on him. It's not a decision here to assent to certain facts. It's an opening of the heart and believing all that he said he was and who he was and what he did for you. Go back to Isaiah 53. Go back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53. You know, when, when the first century preachers got up to preach, they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They didn't have 
This is what they had. They opened the Old Testament text, and this, Isaiah 53, was preached on a pretty regular basis by the New Testament preachers in the first century before the Gospels were ever written, before we had any letters. There, were, there was close to 100, 150 years before they really had any documents we call the, the New Testament. This is what they opened to, Isaiah 53. I want you to go down uh, verse 6, ah, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. Allow the Holy Spirit to impress these words upon your heart. Theologians call this vicarious atonement. We normal people just call it, He died in our place. He died for us. Notice verse 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him and him alone was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Not we will be healed, we are healed with his very wounds. It goes on in verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Notice his reaction. Yet he opened not his mouth. Can you imagine him walking through, this, through the crowded streets of Jerusalem? No one ran to his defense. And yet he opened not his mouth. Perhaps seeing the man he had given sight to. Looking up and saying, don't you remember me? You see because of me. Nothing. Mouth closed. Notice, it was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. The world that we live in honors power. The world that we live in honors strength. Who says it the best, who says it the most, who is able to do mighty and great things. And yet the greatest moment of all of history, of all eternity, was the Son of God silently being crushed by the weight of the cross and the afflictions of those tormenting him. Because he was doing it to pay for my sin and your sin. He was doing it to set us free. He was doing it to heal us from the onslaught of sin. He was doing it to bring us back to himself. There is no more sobering and humbling moment and to see our master under the weight of the cross carrying it through the streets of Jerusalem. Let's go on a little bit further in the story. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. So this was his placard. Pilate also wrote, and he said, it read, Jesus of Nazareth. 
the king of the Jews. <laughs> now, Pilate did it to spite. Pilate did it to rub it in their faces, the chief priests. He did it in order to one last slap because he felt guilty of what he had done. He knew he had done wrong, and yet this is what he did to get back at them. It was a biting moment. But in the economy of God, God meant it to be written exactly like it was meant to be written. He can use the foolishness of men, can he not? To be from Nazareth was its slam within itself. It was a backwater town that few Jews would ever admit coming from. He was known as the Nazarene, and it wasn't an, an endearing term in the first century. Now Christians took it, took it, and said, yes, we are followers of the Nazarene. But to the chief priests and to the elite in Jerusalem, that was a slander and a slam. It was a backwaters town that... But, no prophet came out of Nazareth. No one significant. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the king of the Jews. Notice where he was crucified. It says, many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in three languages. It was written in Hebrew. It was written in Latin. It was written in... Greek. One on top of the other. These were the three groups of people that gathered in Jerusalem. And God wanted to make sure that every group got the message. Notice the chief priests had a problem with that. <laughs> they just, evil always does. Evil never gets. And, and they just look up and there he is. And that, that had its... That had its, uh, its intended wound, the intended infliction by the pilot. He, he got it. He got their hair in the back of their neck. And, and so they say to him in verse 21, So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the... This man said, not that he really was, he claimed to be, and this is what happened to him. Notice how resolved Pilate is now. Notice how stubborn he is. Notice how strong he is. Where was this strength a few moments ago? What I have written, I have written. Go away. Don't bother me anymore. It is like it is. Go stick that in your tunic and uh, down the road you go. But God had it just like he wanted. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each of the four soldiers. Four of them. Also his tunic. Now I want you to go back to Psalms 22. I want you to go back to Psalms 22 and I want you to see a fulfillment of scripture that we'll take the time to look at because in the life of Jesus there were hundreds and hundreds of fulfillments of scripture and during this Passion Week, and especially this experience of the cross, scriptures were being fulfilled left and right by unknowing people who were saying things and doing things that they had no idea what they were doing. Notice Psalm 22, Psalm 22, verse 6. 
This is from the perspective, we'll be back to Psalm 22 some more in the coming weeks because this gives you an idea of what Jesus experienced on the cross from his perspective. In fact, look at verse 1. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's, those are familiar words. Verse 6, for I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. This is what they say. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. That was said at the cross. He rescued him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him, mocking Christ. Verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. In his answer to his father, you made me... You made me trust you at my mother's breast, verse 10. On him was I cast from my birth. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Beshan surround me. Bulls of Beshan were incredibly large and incredibly furious. They weren't the kind of bulls you have behind a fence. They opened wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion i am poured out like water all my bones are out of joint notice verse 16 for dogs encompass me a company of evil doers encircle me they have pierced my hands and my feet verse 17 i count all my bones not a bone on him was broken They stare and gloat over me. Notice verse 18. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, my tunic, they cast lots. There were four Roman soldiers fulfilling the very words of Scripture over and over again. Nothing catches God off guard. Verse chapter 19 of the Gospel of John. We'll read a few more and be done. They got the tunic, they looked at it. I have a question I want you to ponder. I probably won't have an answer this morning. I just want you to think about it. They took his clothes, they separated them, they ripped them into four, or at least they separated four different pieces between the soldiers. Are these the the clothes he had on? Or were these the clothes they took with him to the crucifixion? Josephus says that he was beaten to a a place that he almost didn't look like a man. He was shredded that much. You have that much blood pouring out of you. You have that many wounds pouring off. You have, have, your clothes are blood-soaked. They had put a purple robe on him, pulled that back off. Was he wearing his own clothes? Did they strip him naked at the cross? Who would want bloody clothes what about his tunic it was one piece they didn't want to separate it they cast lots which is like throwing dice for it gambling for his one was that soaked with blood interesting thought isn't it I'm sure there's a deep and abiding principle somewhere in there I just don't know what it is notice but the the tunic was seamless 
woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, let us not tear it. Willing to tear the Son of God apart, but they were worried about a bloody tunic. Let us cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. For this is to fulfill the scripture. This is back in Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast their lots. We'll end with that last phrase in verse 24. So the soldiers, they did these things. Now I know you can look back at 2,000 years ago and think, what in the world does it have relevance for me? It has incredible relevance for us. This event of the crucifixion as if it happened yesterday. The blood still flows. The benefit of the crucifixion and the, and the, the payment of Christ heals us. It sets us free. It forgives us of all of our sins if you will trust in Him. It not only forgives and cleanses us from all sins for all time, it removes the sin right out of us. So that we are new creatures because of what Christ did. Just a couple thoughts and then we'll come and sing together as a church and be dismissed. I want you to think of a couple different thoughts. In the end, he lost all of his friends. They were all gone. Now John was out there in the crowd, his mother, some ladies were out in the crowd. But by and large, everyone that had hung out with him took off. The crowd that he died with, he had never met, and they were criminals. He did that for us in our place. He was willing to have all of his friends forsake him in order to embrace those who would follow him. And he made his company with the sinners and transgressors in order to make us clean and presentable to God. I want you to think about this too. Everything he owned, everything the Son of God owned was on his back. He owned four pieces of clothes and one tunic. That's it. That's all he had in all his life. And they took that away from him. And four men that he had never known took his clothes away and then gambled for his only garment. He lost everything. For us. He sacrificed everything, his friends, his possessions, but most of all, he took sin on his shoulders for us so that we could have sin off of our shoulders. He became sin for us that we might become, by his grace, the righteousness of God himself. Christianity isn't about levels of performance that get you clean. You don't start at the bottom basement and get saved and then begin to change your life. And every time you change your life, he pours more blessing and favor on you. No, no, no. Christianity is when you walk in the door and you believe on Christ. You are, you, the fatted calf is killed. The best garments are put on you. And you are as righteous as you will always be throughout all eternity, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. That isn't given to us in levels. That is given to us in one incredible lump sum. 
Do you think like that? Do you understand that? All of His righteousness is upon you. Now, if you know Him as your Savior, if you do not know Him as your Savior, your sin is on yourself. You carry the weight of it. And it is such a crushing weight that you don't even know you carry it unless the Holy Spirit makes you aware of it. He has to open your eyes to it before you will run to Christ. Now, if you're saying amen within your spirit, you have run to Christ. If you are uncomfortable with that last statement, you have not. You know him? The first step in knowing him is to know what he did for you. He did this on your behalf. Why did he have to suffer like that? Because sin required it for a just and holy God. And God himself took the sin upon himself in order to set you free. You know, you don't get out from that. You just, you don't, you don't get away from that. You, you can't, like, run the other way and, like, five years from now you die and it's okay. You don't run, you don't, you don't, like, Pilate, wash your hands and said, I'm free from this deal. You can't. You can't. Because last time I checked, the death rate was 100%. We all die. It isn't like if we're going to die, it's when we're going to die. Do you know him today? Do you know him? 